in 300 meters. Wait. I just wanted to tell you to take a left at the valley. The valley's best podcast. I woke up this morning. Had a burning deep inside. When you're feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain There's hunger and despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching Time for us to share Word for centuries I really like that song Welcome back to another edition of Swept to the Valley. Hi, Nancy. How you doing? Hey, pretty good. How is everybody today? Good. Well, we got uh, some uh, guests with us in the studio today. We have our old friend Jim. Jim, welcome back. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. And we also have our expert on today because the show today is about a skeptical look at guns. And we have Ken with us. Ken, how you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. Welcome aboard. Thank you. <laughs> we QD applause. QD applause. QD applause. Sound effect. You know, we waste no money here. Uh, we got a full show going on today. We got lots of stuff. We got a um, uh, an update with Wanda Morris. Uh, Nancy, you remember Wanda Morris, the CEO? Oh, of, sure. CEO of Dying with Dignity. She's Absolutely. Given us, she's given us a little update early on during the week. We're going to play that too. Uh, we got a segment about uh, things that make you go, hmm, that's really going to make you scratch your head. And uh, we got uh, everything going on with guns today. We're going to explore guns up and down, left and right, the history, all of it. And we got Ken here for this. And Jim, who's also actually, I wouldn't call you a fan, but you're into it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's keep on going with our usual stay in history. Alrighty, this day in history, which as we know by now is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between September 14th to September 27th. Starting with September 15th, it was the International Day of Democracy. And on September 15th in history in 1904, Wilbur Wright made the first airplane flight. In some ways, it's history, and some it really doesn't seem like it's that long ago, does it? Very short history. Very short. In 1928, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, which uh, was, uh, as we know, almost by accident with bread molds. But a a lot of wonderful um, inventions and medical inventions happened by accident. Haven't they? And you know, when you think about the the number of different um, medical things that we've had in history, I I would say at least forty percent of them have been by accident. Happy accidents. Keep (laughs) keep doing those accidents. (laughs) All those scientists listening in. Uh, September the nineteenth is Fall Astronomy Day, and it's also the day where my absolute very favorite UFO story in history took place. And it was called the Hill Abduction because it had to do with a couple named Barney and Betty Hill. Does anybody remember? Do you go back as far as 1961, anybody, to remember Barney and Betty Hill? Is this going to be new information? The names are are familiar, but I'm just not remembering. A couple in the car, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Uh, Barney and Betty Hill were um, coming back from... um, a, um, a vacation in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and um, they came to a stop and they saw a bright light, and from looking at the bright light, 
an abduction ensued. And when they got home, they remembered the abduction. They remembered everything about it, but they couldn't remember the passage of time or how long it took. Um, eventually, they were hypnotized and their stories seemed to be credible. And even people who were skeptical really thought that perhaps there was something to it because they um, had details that so far no one else had, had been able to expound on when they had dealt with, with aliens. But they were remarkably detailed. In um, 1966, they wrote a book called, uh, they did not, but a book called Interrupted Journey. And in 1975, there's a television movie called The UFO Incident, and James Earl Ray and Estelle Parsons played. Now, the interesting thing, and why it's my favorite, is because usually you think of a Southern couple or someone who's not well-educated or someone who's looking for publicity, but Barney and Betty Hill were fascinating. They were an interracial couple, which was unusual, but they were very, yeah, they were very happily married. Um, They lived, um, uh, um, whoops, let me get my tongue back (laughs) back in. (laughs) Barney was employed by the U.S. Postal Service. Betty was a social worker. They were Unitarians, um, very active in their congregation. They were members of the NAACP and community leaders. And actually, Barney sat on a local board of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Not your typical couple that would make up something about UFOs, but well worth looking into. And if you can even get the movie or read the book, it's it's a very, very fascinating uh, UFO event. So why would aliens go postal on this couple? (laughs) You'd think they'd choose some of the smarter ones, but I guess if they choose the dumber ones, then people won't believe them, right? Well, well, yeah. It's an alleged story. Oh, I like that. Now now I've got something else that will trigger the fact that it's my very favorite one. Just one question. The aliens went postal. Absolutely. What state was it, you said? Pardon? The state. The state. What state Oh, they were in, in New Hampshire. Okay. Which is not really a state that's where the people are, you know, sort of wacko or crazy ideas that generally are pretty staid you know, you're giving me the eyes so <laughs> don't they say once you go back yeah you jim back. may jim may know of some fascinating wacko stories that he can share with us later <laughs> okay um september the 21st international day of peace and that started in 1982 Every uh, year has a theme, and this theme is the right of people to peace, which is pretty good considering that the Pope is also chosen, I think, this year as a year of peace and uh, among other other, other things that, that he is trying to encourage uh, people to adopt. Uh, September the 22nd was One Web Day, which is an annual day of Internet celebration and awareness that started in 2006. On September 22nd, an unusual event in 1656, that was the first U.S. trial by an all-female jury. Very unusual. But this was in uh, colonial Maryland, and Maryland um, practices of common law in that time, um, they could pick juries that had to do uh, from a need to accommodate to practical situations. So here was the situation. Judith Catchpole was a young servant girl, and she was tried before the jury um, because the judge needed the expertise of women to decide whether or not she had been pregnant and gave birth to a child. 
So women were the were the experts on the on the jury, and the reason, <laughs> yeah, the the reason she um, was being tried was that she was on a voyage. And on the voyage, um, on the boat, she was an indentured servant. And another fellow on the uh, boat with her made bizarre accusations. He accused her of killing the child, cutting the throat of female passengers, and, and other really, you know, startling um, acts, acts of um, um, horror, which might be good for <laughs> for the Halloween show. Sounds like a movie. Yeah, it sounds like a sounds like a movie. But he was the one that said she had been pregnant, gave birth to the child, killed the child, and so forth. So eventually, she did go to trial. The women prevailed and said no, she had never been pregnant, she had never had a child, and uh, so she was a, she was acquitted. Which was kind of interesting that back in the 1600s. By the way, even after women were given the uh, right to vote for the 19th Amendment, women still could not serve on juries for for quite a while after that. Um, in 1888, on the same date, the first issue of National Geographic magazine was published. Uh, September 24th, it was National Punctuation Day. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Watch those, um, watch those commas and semicolons, everybody. Um, in 1927, in Toronto, there was a hockey team called the Toronto Saint Patrick's. Anybody know what they eventually changed? Well, um, in, in 1927, that must he, have been some kind of beer league, right? They changed the St. Patrick's. Come the, on, the St. Patrick's. They were they were the St. Patrick's, and the owner Con Smythe changed the name to the Maple Leafs. So there's a little history, a little trivia. What was the name of the Maple Leafs before they were the Maple Leafs? Did they actually win anything as the Patrick's? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no offense to our Ontario listeners. N- they won a new name. I think that's probably <laughs> the. <laughs> maybe it's time to change it again. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Bring the luck of the Irish back. There you go. Uh, September 25th was World Pharmacy Day. And on that day in 1906 in Spain, um, we owe our remote control and wireless to a gentleman named Torres Covedo, who successfully demonstrated what they called in Spanish the telequino in Spain because he controlled a vessel with eight people from a distance of two kilometers. So it was really spectacular. And you would think that the the um, uh, scientific community and the king would help um, his invention along, but he couldn't get any funding, and it sort of languished for a while until World War II, and then the German Navy used remote control boats loaded with explosive to attack opposition ships. So it was a great invention. It just had to wait until the right time to be put into operation. September 27th, World Tourism Day. So where in the world would you go, Kevin, if you had a chance to go? Oh, I think I made a pact with the forces of the universe that I'm not supposed to die until at least I see Africa. <laughs> How about you, Jim? Where would you go in the world? Well, I was going to go to Egypt, but... That's uh, well, in Africa. Other, it works. It <laughs> Africa. <laughs> That's so the other revolution, I had to postpone that. Yeah, okay, Ken, where are you going to go? Uh, well, the one last place to find out where my family comes from, and that is Japan. Ah. You've got Japanese ancestry? My mother is half Japanese. Wow, I never would have said. 
No. 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 Well, Maybe no. when I was a child you could see. I was a little bit darker <laughs> yeah, you, in complexion. But, uh, you look way more Irish than Japanese. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, half uh, my father's side of family is all from Scotland. And then even my my paternal grandfather, my, my mother um, was uh, half Japanese, her mother being full Japanese during the war, kind of fooled around with an English gentleman that was overtraining the pilots and... Well, in the Japanese community, regardless of where, at that time in day, day and age, uh, you did not uh, you did not date a white guy or any other <laughs> kind of person. And she was very young, so given given up for adoption, uh, and uh, so yeah. And my f- the family was originally from um, um, uh, what was that? One of the cities that got bombed, Hiroshima. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and they actually got out of Hiroshima about five years prior. To the war when they came to Canada, so so I have to find my history there. I love it. You ask a simple question and you get fascinating information. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. <laughs> that was great. There's a wonderful reason to uh, to travel to find your roots and your so that and was your this, heritage. Yeah, so that was this day in history in the life of Ken. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, I already did the I already did the Scotland trip, so it's just the Japan it's trip. It's the Japan now. trip. Um, going back a, a little bit um, on on the same day as World Tourism Day in 1905, the Physics uh, Journal um, published Albert Einstein's paper. Does the inertia of a body depend upon its energy content, which introduced the equation E equals mc squared? And in 1908, Henry Ford's first Model T left the plant in Detroit, Michigan. And in 1937, oh, I love this, the first Santa Claus training school opened in Albion, New York. And it was the Charles W. Howard Santa Claus School, which is still in operation today. So it's good to know that Santas are still being trained to do the ho-ho-hos and juggle little kids on their laps. That's right. Is your Santa certified? Yeah. <laughs> in 1962, Rachel, this is a big day. Uh, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. Um, anyone who hasn't read that book, it should be uh, absolute essential reading for anybody about the deleterious impact pesticides um, have on the the environment. And to cap it all off, in 1998, Google was launched. So that the world was changed forever. The world was changed forever. And (laughs) that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events uh, events and people that make up this day in history. Thank you so much, Nancy. And we'll be right back right after this. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Center. Please visit our website for more details, bchumanist.ca. All right, we're back. Ah, so many things to go today. So what do we want to go first? we want to do the uh, update with Wanda Morris right away, or do we want to jump into the whole gun situation? What do you guys think? Oh, go ahead. Pick one. Oh. You're brave. You can do it. I've got faith in you. <laughs> okay, well, 
Uh, as I said earlier, Wanda Morris is the CEO of Dying with Dignity. And last we spoke to her, we did a show on the whole situation uh, where they were on the verge of uh, tearing down laws that were impeding uh, the process of dying of assisted physician-assisted death. Uh, so uh, Wanda contacted me and said, hey, you know, I've got some updates. I'm sure your listeners will be more than happy to listen to. And uh, we basically spent about 10 minutes talking about this on the phone early on this week. So let me go right ahead and play that, and we'll be right back. All right. Well, we got Wanda Morris back with us, friend of the podcast and head honcho of the Dying with Dignity. Hello, Wanda. How are you doing? Hey, Kevin. Really well, thanks. See that? You got fans all over the place, Wanda. <laughs> You know, last you and I spoke, um, you were just about to, uh, uh, the country was just about to uh, pass new laws against uh, the, uh, the. Uh, oh, jeez, I should start that again. <laughs> last we spoke, you and I were about to, you, the, the country was about to pass laws uh, breaking down, laws that were written against the uh, Dying with uh, Dignity, and uh, you guys were up and running, and uh, soon after that, the... Uh, Conservatives and especially the Canada Revenue Agency cut down your uh, your charitable status. So uh, you're here to give us an update today. I sure am. Uh, so why don't I take it from there? Yeah. Uh, February 6, 2015, uh, was a memorable day in Canadian history because it was the day that the Supreme Court struck down the ban saying that it's illegal to help someone die. Uh, And they struck down the ban so that a physician could help someone die if that person was a competent adult, uh, was suffering unbearably with a grievous and irremediable medical condition. So think sick and dying, very ill, lots of suffering. If they really wanted an assisted death, a physician could give it to them. Uh, And so this, uh, this law was struck down to come into effect in a year's time. And the Supreme Court said to the government that the federal government or the provincial government could legislate. Both could do so. Neither had to. Uh, And so into that void, uh, we stepped as Dying with Dignity to say, how can we uh, lobby, advocate, influence, educate, inform federal and provincial governments so that we get laws in this country that... uh, allow people access to assisted dying and don't undermine the Supreme Court's decision. So that's been what we've been working on for the past uh, six or seven months, and it's certainly what we're going to continue to work on until we, um, the governments either decide not to legislate or we have legislation in that does respect patient rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in the meantime, Quebec, is, it's now, correct me if I'm, uh, if I'm wrong, but it's now actually legal in Quebec for uh, assisted uh, dying with a physician, right? Uh, So Quebec has passed a law that comes into effect December 10th. So in just a couple months there, I guess three months there, we will uh, have individuals being able to have the assistance of a doctor to die. And then the rest of Canada will follow February 6th unless uh, a new government is elected that asks for a deferral and is given a deferral of that February 6th date, which may uh, indeed happen. Certainly the Conservatives have said that, among other things, if they are re-elected, they will seek to delay the implementation of assisted dying in Canada. Yeah, another reason not to vote for the Conservatives. But I hear also there are some darker clouds coming over the horizon. 
well, so the Conservative government, the government in power, has had the... Um, They've had the file and for five months did nothing on it to uh, move forward the, the legislation for assisted dying. And then after five months, they appointed a panel uh, of experts. And, you know, at first blush, you'd think this is quite a good panel of experts because it's got three people on it. And two of them testified in the Supreme Court case for assisted dying. But when you look closer, you realize that they testified against legalizing assisted dying. They were witnesses. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were. They were the ones uh, working for the crown, trying not to have assisted dying legalized. So then the conservative government put them on this panel. So I guess is that like the flocks in charge of the hen house? Um, then they issued uh, a consultation document to ostensibly to listen and hear from Canadians how they felt. But, Kevin, if you've ever seen a really egregious questionnaire, something that's you know, maybe says it's objective but is really designed to influence people one way, this document is perhaps the best example I've ever seen of fear-mongering. You know, it asks a question and then it gives you, like, you know, three things. Consider this risk. Consider this fear. Consider this horrible scenario. Uh, it's just, it's appallingly bad. Uh, so, so we've been working really hard um, now, of course, the initial reaction to that is, I don't want anything to do with these guys, if that's the way they're going to play it. But we know that, that people who oppose assisted dying are all over it. So we've, we've marshaled our supporters to say, you know, as bad as this is, we can't be silent because then the only voices that will be on record are the ones that say, oh, well, this is very true. So we've worked really hard to have, you know, and we're still doing that right through to the October 13th deadline, to have people respond to the uh, Supreme, to the federal panel. And, and fortunately, there's also a way for people to respond, not just to answer the questionnaire, but to provide comments. And, mm -hmm. and I know our supporters have been very vocal in calling out the panel composition and the questionnaire uh, and the way it's done wow that's a that's kind of a tough job to try to convince the government to change its mind on something like that when you got the whole machinery of the uh, government trying to come down on you and uh, trying to impose their way isn't it uh you know was that mission impossible music that's great <laughs> uh, um so indeed and and so part of what we've done is we have um, turned this into an election issue And uh, because we have statements from the NDP, the Liberal Party and the Green Party, all supporting this decision for the right to die in Canada and all saying that if they were elected, they will support the letter and the spirit of the Supreme Court's decision. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic news. Uh, and um You know, I'm not presuming to tell people how to vote, but if they, you know, are kind of on the borderline, that may be something that influences them one way or the other. The Conservatives have made uh, no commitments on the legislation. The only thing that they repeatedly say is that it's very controversial and they're very concerned about it. Uh, so my fear is that if we have a Conservative government re-elected, that they could pass legislation that really undermines assisted dying. Uh, they potentially could use the notwithstanding clause just to wipe out the Supreme Court decision, Supreme Court's decision, but more likely, and we've actually heard them suggest things like, mm, everybody who wants an assisted death 
okay, they should um, see a psychiatrist, have permission from a judge, get sign-off from every member of their family, and then go for a two-year waiting period. What? <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, it's legal, but... You know, there might be about three people in Canada who actually qualify for it. Uh, so, so certainly, we're working very hard to to let uh, our supporters know that there are um, uh, other political parties, other candidates out there that have a very different view of assisted dying. And, and in fact, we're, we're really encouraging people to ask the candidates in their writings what their positions are. Two questions in particular, mm-hmm. you know, if elected, will you support the letter and the spirit of the Supreme Court's decision? And will you support the February 6th deadline? Uh, because certainly the conservatives have said they won't. And we are concerned that people who are sick and dying right now and just hanging on, waiting to have that peaceful death will be told, no, you've got to wait weeks or months more while the government gets back at it. Our position is that the Supreme Court has said that the law can be struck down at that point. There doesn't need to be legislation in place. So while we certainly are, are happy to have legislation, we don't think that anybody should be made to wait mm. while politicians try to figure out what to write. Uh, you know, to you or I, it might not seem like such a long time, a few weeks, a few months, but if you're seriously ill and suffering, Every hour can feel like an eternity. Yeah, yeah. Well, you and I know each other, Wanda, and uh, we've been friends for a while now. But you know what? Uh, I respect the fact that you're very PC and you're saying, you know, you're not going to encourage people to, to vote whichever way. But I'm not that PC, and I will tell you right now, you know, if if, if the whole dying with dignity uh, issue is something that you should take to heart, and you should, you really should, you know, voting conservative, it goes against your... Uh, your your best interest and the interest of your loved ones. So I'll say it loud and clear. I've got no problem saying it. <laughs> there you go. Well, and you alluded to the fact that the Conservatives um, earlier this year uh, took away our charitable status. Mm. So we don't have to be... Uh, we, we are uh, nonpartisan, but certainly we, um, you know, we don't... Uh, we're not at risk anymore. Your, your listeners might be familiar with the, the charity chill that mm, yes. the people have talked about where you know, environmental charities, charities protesting pipelines, charities working for human rights, uh, and ourselves, a charity working to give people the right to die, all of which are things that uh, the Conservative government has not um, looked fondly on. We've all been subject to, to owner's audits and dying with dignity Canada. We actually had our charitable status annulled so that we are no longer a charitable organization. Yeah, it's even worse for you guys because you, you were actually accepted and you were just renewing it. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they come out and say, no, we're pulling it off, you know, after all you guys had it all this time. You know, Kevin, you're absolutely right. Because what they said is you didn't do anything wrong. Like, we told you that you could do this and be a charity. But you know what? We told you that 30 years ago. We told it to you again five years ago when you reapplied. But you know what? We, we weren't right. We were actually wrong both times. So now we've changed our mind and you're no longer charitable. The, the um, government decided to admit they were wrong? That's what they did. They said it was our mistake. We should never have said that you were charitable. And... And from our standpoint, it was really crazy. They said, you know, you're just arguing one side of a case. And I feel like, well, there is not really a compelling other side. I mean, we do provide, you know, the 
we talk about the risks of assisted dying, but then we talk about how those have been addressed in other jurisdictions. But they said, no, you're, um, you know, and, and of course the other thing that was just crazy is they took our charitable status away within a year of the law being changed in Canada. Mm-hmm. So they obviously, you know, well, I don't know, but I, I do question whether there was perhaps another agenda other than strictly the uh, Canada Revenue Agency's yeah. uh, rules at play here. We don't have any evidence of that, but, you know, it's highly suspicious. I'll say that myself. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd want to tell our listeners as to what how they can get involved uh, uh, into the fight? Just- Love your listeners to get involved. I mentioned that that we've got the election platform, uh, you know, asking candidates. We've got the federal platform to the federal panel to respond to. There also is a provincial panel that has been launched, and it's really everything that the federal panel should have been but wasn't. Uh, and it's it's led by Ontario, but all provinces are invited to participate. So would really love you know supporters in BC to uh, to check it out. Um, there's a questionnaire for the provincial panel as well, as well as an opportunity to write letters. We've created uh, toolkits to help people do that. We're also asking, and I know it's a lot, but it's our year and it's our time to raise our voices. We're asking people to do short videos. And on our website, we've got a little um, explanation of how to do it, but kind of, you know, maybe a minute and a half with an iPhone, just why you think assisted dying, why it's so important to you. And then those are things that we can share on social media and just really let our politicians and our new government know that this is something people really care about. We've got to have, uh, you know, for those of us unlucky enough to face the catastrophic diagnosis whether you know ourselves or loved ones we really want them to have a choice of a gentle death mm. uh, so dyingwithdignity.ca that's our website all the information is there really encourage people to go on sign up for our newsletters uh, and, and get involved because what happens in the next six months to 12 months will impact how canadians die for decades to come thank you so much wanda we'll keep in touch Okay, thank you so much, Kevin. <laughs> okay, bye now. As overlord, all will kneel trembling before me and obey my brutal commands. End communication. It makes no difference which one of us you vote for. Either way, your planet is doomed. Doomed! These candidates make me want to vomit in terror. <laughs> all right, <laughs> we're back. Thank you to Wanda for all this. She's a sweetheart. Yeah, she is. I hope uh, we get regular updates. Yeah, of course we will. Of course we will. We'll always keep her in the back. She's more than happy to come by and, and give us more updates. All right. Well, there's something I wanted to... Since we're talking about guns today and uh, all the interesting stories that come with guns, there's something I thought you guys would want to uh, figure out about... Uh, I, w- I want your opinion on a, a certain story. Jim, tell me something. Have you ever, you know had this situation where you come in and uh, you have your weapon and you drop it and you're afraid the enemy can pick it up? Does that, does that ever happen to you? No. Oh, well, you don't have to worry about it because right now we have... Things that make you go... Oh, yes. We got a nice story for that. Let me grab that. Now, did you guys know... Have you... 
like I said, have you ever been caught in a war zone with an extreme Islamist and you were afraid they could steal your trusty weapon and use it to further their jihad? Has that ever happened to you? That just happened to me last Saturday. Why didn't you tell us last week so I would have been prepared? Oh, I'm so but I'll be, I'll be okay for the next time. Okay, good. Oh, good. Well, never fear, because a U.S. gun manufacturer has come up with an elegant solution. Oh, and by the way, this is not a segment for Ripley's Believe It or Not. Spike Tactical, a gun manufacturer, has introduced the new AR-15. You familiar with the AR-15, guys? Yes, I am. Perfect. And they're determined to keep it out of the hands of Islamic terrorists by, and this is no joke, they decide to etch a Bible verse on the magazine. <laughs> oh, yes, and they also named the AR-15 the Crusader. <laughs> see where this is going. Huh? So a company spokesperson and former Navy SEAL, Ben Thomas, explained... Quote, one of the world's biggest threats remain Islamic terrorism. We wanted to make sure we build a weapon that would never be used by Muslim terrorists to kill innocent people. So <laughs> the rifle <laughs> is etched with the words of Psalm 144.1, which is... I should almost put a voice on that. <laughs> um, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. <laughs> it gets even better. The safety setting include peace... War and God wills it. <laughs> the left side of the, the weapon also features a cross and shield, and the gun retails for $1,395. I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this, guys. During the Iraq War, they used to write Bible verses on the bombs that they were tra- dropping um, <laughs> on the actual like fighter planes and stuff. Well, yeah, because God likes to pick sides, apparently. Yeah. Well, I, for one, will not be buying one of those rifles. <laughs> um, I, as, a, as a gun owner and a, and a firearms you know, owner's advocate, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous, to be honest. Um, first of all, uh, if you look at the type of weapons that are used in the Middle East, uh, they're not AR-15s. So I think it's, um, honestly, I think it's kind of playing to the uh, current American sentiment of uh, anti-Islamism or whatever the term is now. It's a marketing gimmick. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Pretty much. Well, I would. I'm kind of curious to see the uh, AR-15 would not be used in that war zone. What is it? I mean, for, forgive my ignorance. I'm not very knowledgeable when it comes to rifles and guns. Why is that? It is a, it is a precision rifle. It's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a highly tuned rifle. So it does not lend itself to being used in like adverse conditions. Uh, one of the biggest complaints soldiers have had since the Vietnam War, since it has been introduced, is that you get a little bit of dirt or you get a little bit of sand in there and enough carbon fouling and all the oil you got to keep putting in there, it just gums it up and prevents it from working, which is why the AK-47, the Russian-designed rifle, is so popular because you can literally run it through thick mud, wipe off the mud, leave all the mud on the inside, and it'll still shoot. Whoa. So that's why it's the preferred uh, it's the preferred firearm for, and, and especially in, in, in the Middle East and whatnot, with the fine, fine silica sand that exists there, and same within Africa in, in many places. Mm-hmm. That gets that just gets into everything, absolutely everything. Yeah, so. d- does it have a Bible verse on the AK-47? Hey, you can write whatever you want. It's got a wood stock on it, so you can just carve right in there. <laughs> so tax American taxpayers 
actually paid for the Bible verses? This is something that went through committees. And, no, no, no. It's not oh. the government making that gun. It's a, it's a, it's a gun manufacturer. It's an independent business, right? Oh, okay. I thought you were saying something about the fact that 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 the military was going to use that. I guess uh, maybe I assumed I assumed it. Yeah, I, th- I, think I must have. I think you're assuming things here. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. It was only in my my mind. I feel a little safer now. But (laughs) it'd be pretty awful. Uh, So the the, the subject today is we're taking a skeptical look at guns and uh, all their issues. But before we get into all the wisdom that Ken is going to give to us, I have a bit of a surprise for you guys. And it's Nancy's favorite thing. Uh huh. That's it. We have a pop quiz, Nancy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know you love that. <laughs> I got three questions for you guys, and we're talking uh-huh. about guns today. So we're gonna see who's gonna win between Nancy, Jim, and Ken. Are you guys ready for this? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm always ready and happy for a pop quiz. <laughs> well, as you may well know, the Canada is a gun-loving country, and um, as a whole, but. Which province has the highest or the largest number of gun licenses? And this is in 2014. Is it A, Yukon? Is it B in BC? Is it uh, C, the Northwest Territories? D in Quebec? Or is it E on Parliament Hill? I would have said Alberta, but... You would have said Alberta. Obviously, it's not one of the choices. Um, I would have chosen one that you didn't list, and that was uh, Ontario. Want to take a crack at Nancy? <laughs> is there all of the above? No, no. The the answer is actually Yukon. Uh, this is the largest number of gun licenses, right? Which is apparently uh, nineteen thousand out of uh, hundred thousand population per capita. Oh, per capita. Yeah. Okay, yeah. If you you didn't say per capita, no, 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 if you said per capita, I would. I don't have said mean. Yukon I don't mean total. Sure. I don't mean total. Yeah, yeah. No, on, on, as a total number versus the provinces, Ontario has the most by virtue of population okay. size. Fine, we'll, we'll, we'll scratch that answer, that, that question. Okay, question two. Sometimes due to various factors, people are refused a gun license. You know, could have had a criminal offense, something like that. How many licenses were refused across Canada, across Canada, in 2014? Is it A, 3, B, 810, C, 5,047, or D, 10,000? I'm going to say the 810. I was going to go for that, too. Three. (laughs) (laughs) It is 810. Oh. Final question. Or not enough. (laughs) I mean, one of the two. Well, you know, if they they refuse that much, that means, you know, you have 810 issues at least. Well, even even as, you know... A firearms owner and one who advocates firearms ownership, I, I can tell you there's a lot of people out there who should just not have them, period, and even think about even having one. So, Why are you looking at me when you say that? Oh, I'm looking at between the two. The, Don't yeah, worry, yeah, I'm trying sure, not to... Sure. In- <laughs> Final question. What is the total number of restricted and prohibited firearms registered in B.C.? No okay, what restricted and prohibited firearms registered in B.C.? Is it A, 27... <laughs> is it B, 1 million? Is it C, 162,000? Or D, half a million? 1 million. Are you saying that they, these are restricted, but they're still licensed? Yeah, they're, re- they're restricted they're, and they're also prohibited, but they're registered in BC. Now, we're not talking about illegal weapons that are not registered. We're talking about the ones that are registered. 
I would be very surprised if it's more than 500,000. I'll go with Jim. Well, the answer is 162,000. Actually, 162,554 to be precise. And that was a quiz that did not have a great impact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, many of them were used to be legal, and then the law changed, and they became illegal. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're prohibited. So they used to be licensed, but... It's a a lot of gray areas. Yeah. Well, just as as a part of the statistics, prior to the ending of the long gun registry... In Canada alone, um, uh, the registry had listed in excess of about 10 million registered firearms within mm. the country. And that's belonging to to roughly close to, at the time, around 2 million registered firearms license holders. Cool. All right. Sir Ken, the floor is all yours. Ah. Tell us today about guns. You want, well, wait, how do you want to start this? You want to go with the history? Yeah, you want to go we'll do a little bit of history. Yeah. Okay, let's go. Um, so let's start off with the history. I mean, you know, uh, Canada, North America being what it is, you know, frontier for many, many years. You know, firearms were a way of life, hunting uh, for subsistence. You know, if you if you didn't have a gun, you didn't eat, right? And of course, then. Also being military occupation with the the British troops here and and so on and so forth etc cetera, etc cetera. and of course the the history of guns in Canada um, right up until the time of the American Revolution was, was pretty much the same uh, the Americans had their revolt which was essentially against us because we were the British right and through through that they you know they developed their own constitution they developed the the second amendment which was a right to bear arms um which they they hold to pretty dear down there which is um, thoroughly abused as well if you ask me yeah yeah and uh it's one of those it's one of those things that um you know they 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 treat it very similar as a right to breathe but a lot of people don't realize that we also have within our law the right to bear arms it's part of the English common law, which was amalgamated into our current law system. That I did not know. Yeah. the uh, As part of the preamble to the British North American Act, the common law was basic, was part of that. And so it is, it's a part of our law because the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Chapter 26, or Part 26 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, um, I actually have that here. If you can give me one second to find it. Sorry for the people. Okay, here take we go. Take your time. Take your time. Yeah, I got it here. So this is just a little blurb. Uh, this is something I I found online, which it uh, an article which talks about how the the Firearms Act itself, which was passed in the 1990s, uh, Bill C68, how it violates actually the several levels of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, I'll just read it as here. It says, The right to bear arms has existed in English common law for at least 300 years and is imported into Canadian law by the preamble of the British North America Act 1867 and Section 26 of of the Charter. Section 26 declares that traditional rights not listed in the Charter continue to have force and effect in Canada. The first explicit recognition of the right to bear arms in British Canadian law occurs in the 1689 Bill of Rights. It is reaffirmed by the celebrated Blackstone in his commentaries as one of the five most important rights of British subjects, as confirmed in several 18th and 19th century precedents. 
Although this right is subject to regulation by Parliament, in Sparrow, 1990, the Supreme Court affirmed that regulation of right does not automatically extinguish the right. The right to bear arms is thus an historical right of all Canadians affirmed by Section 26 of the Charter. Since the Firearms Act prohibits the mere possession of a firearm, even for the purpose of self-defense in one's own home, the, 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 the Firearms Act violates this right. Uh, given the intimate connection between the right of self-defense and the right to life, liberty, and security of the person protected by Section 7 of the Charter, the state must justify its violation of this right according to strict tests mandated by the Oaks precedent. So this, this is simply a, a political move the government made to enact that law violating that constitutional right, I guess. Well, it, it's very much the case. And in fact, many of the politicians which brought in the law in the 1990s, um, which was the liberal government at the time, uh, the famous quote by the, the then justice or public safety minister, Alan Rock, was, I came into parliament firmly believing that nobody but military and police should own firearms. Well, you know, considering the history of how, and even to this day, there are many people who subsist on wildlife that they hunt, and they use firearms for that. I mean, the Inuit, for for example. I mean, if they didn't have modern firearms to use, they they wouldn't exist anymore. You know, but um, there have been many of the politicians who voted for it and helped write the law. Who later on, uh, in years past, after they've retired from Parliament. Uh, they have been quoted saying that it had nothing to do with public safety and nothing to do with um, gun violence, and it had everything to do with the social reengineering of the country. Wow, that's a uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, please <Yeah>. go on. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, um, you know, and prior, all the way up until the 1930s, I mean, the the purchase of firearms was pretty, pretty mundane, pretty, you know. Easy. Uh, firearms have never been a, an, a, a a product that the average person could afford. You know, it was a it was a luxury item, and it still is even to this day. You know, it's it's not a it's a not a, so much a necessity; it's a want, right? And uh, in, in the 1930s, uh, the government passed law that saw that all handguns had to be registered. So all all handguns in this country have been registered since the 1930s. And, you know, so from the 1930s to the 1970s, um, again, we had very, a very much American-style gun culture and, and the ability to purchase the, the, the type of firearms that they have. In the 70s, I think it was 1977 or 76, I can't remember the exact day, uh, year, um, they passed the law, further law, uh, called the Firearms Acquisition Certificate, or FAC. And basically, what the FAC was, uh, it was it was a it was a safety measure. It was basically you went down to your local police station and said, "Hey, you know, I'd like to buy firearms. You'd pay the fee, and the, they would do a background check on you." I think it was like a twenty some odd day waiting period for you to get the certificate because they did the background check to make sure you weren't a criminal. You got the certificate, and then you could go buy whatever you wanted, right? And there was some further classification of firearms that was done, but you could still pretty much buy anything and everything, right? Mm -hmm. And then again, very much similar. Uh, there are there are weapons that are now classified as prohibited, which you can no longer purchase, that you can actually, could actually buy back then, uh, one of them being the, you know, the infamous AK-47. So, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s, we had this system, and then in the... 
uh, the 1990s, I don't remember the date, but we had a Cole Polytechnic, which was the shooting of, uh, I believe it was 14 or 15. Yeah, women I think it was like 16 the, students. Yeah, well, I think 14, 15 students and two teachers. So okay, that, yeah. Yeah, so um, this was done by, obviously, a, a mentally ill person who in later actually had a personal hatred of women, which is why he specifically had targeted women in that event. And so from that singular event, the government, in what many of us call a knee-jerk reaction to the tragedy, introduced new legislation uh, which culminated in a combination of limited magazine capacities, which culminated in the uh, uh, Firearms Act, which is which was Bill C-68, which also part of Bill 68 then was the introduction of a licensing system and then therefore also the, uh, and the firearms registry or the gun registry. Um, and of course, since then, we've lived with that particular, particular set of laws. Uh, the current conservative government have made some changes, meaning one, the, 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 um, the elimination of the long gun registry, and then more recently within this last year, some bureaucratic changes to eliminate which essentially which is useless paperwork you know that that people have to go through no no the way the way you say that it almost sounds um so we we had a more of an american style and then they came in and they put the, the one that really caught my attention is the limit on the magazine so that essentially i think is seems to me like a good decision um the decision to limit magazines based on the event I mean, we, Some have, events we, we, have, we have several countries right now that are looking at that, including the United States. Australia, I believe, did something like that similar too. Limit the size of magazines. So Australia did, yeah, yeah. They've also they actually also enacted um, firearms law, which saw many many people uh, lose collections that they had built over years and years and years. And, and we're not talking like military style firearms. We're talking simple shotguns that you use for hunting. There were various different types of shotgun that are available in the market, which you had to hand them in for no rhyme or reason other than the fact that they had a, a, you know, usually these events that introduce, um, you know, limitations on, on, on access and whatnot, usually there is a, you know, a, I guess you call it a precursor event which tugs on the heartstrings of the public and then therefore the politicians turn around and say, well, we must do this now. And not really thinking about what they're doing, they're just responding to... Uh, this emotional response. Now, I'm myself personally am not an advocate for an American style system. I mean, there are there are there are there are compromises that need to be in place for public safety. Um, but the thing is, is how far do you take compromise when it starts to infringe on certain rights? Because you know, every time the government wants to take a right from you, then they take one, then they take another, and then they take another, right? So, um, but do, should, we, should we? I mean, I could understand, you know, uh, if we're discussing rights here, and I know, like the Americans, like you said, the Americans are very fond of the right to bear arms. But in a society like ours today, do we really need to have the right to bear arms? The right to bear arms is not so much. Um, I can understand, like you said, the, the, the guy who's up north is in the Inuit; he's still hunting. I, I totally get that. But me, right here in the city. Well, part of the part of the right to bear arms comes to the fact where, um, under the current law, uh, it is a felony offense that will give you will get you a minimum of three years 
Now, this is minimum mandated. There's no, there's no bargaining. There's no appealing. It's a minimum mandated three years in prison for being in possession of a firearm without a license. You know. Now, that's, we're not talking about criminals with the firearms. We're talking about Joe Farmer, who forgot to renew his license, and he has a shotgun on his property. He forgets to renew his, renew his license. Six months down the road, the police come onto his property because of some reason, and they find a firearm in his, in his house. He's now got three years. So that's where the part of the right to bear arms comes in. Not in the sense of the Americans, which is it's a, it's a holy wacko sense that they have with regards to right to <laughs> But it's the right to be able to be in possession of a lawfully produced and lawfully distributed good without the fear of prosecution. Prime example is I'll, I'll, I'll use fishing or archery, hunt, hunting with an archery. It doesn't take a license to own a bow and arrow. Right? It takes a license to use it within the public sphere. doesn't take a license to own and purchase a fishing rod and tackle. But it, you require a license to use it within the public sphere. Even the same for uh, motor vehicles. You don't need to have a driver's license to own a motor vehicle. But if you're going to use it on public roads, you need to have a license. And that's the problem with licensing in the sense that even licensing with vehicles... The license is a pass from being convicted of a criminal offense. It's your get-out-of-jail card. That doesn't seem right to me. That it's, you know, if I drive my car, which I legally purchased and took training to drive on the road, if I don't have, if I don't renew my license and I continue to drive, well, then I'm committing a criminal offense by not having this get-out-of-free-jail card. That's where the notion of the right to bear arms in terms of Canada comes. It's like, I shouldn't have to have this get-out-of-jail-free card to be able to own a firearm. If I can prove by going down to the, um, the, the police station, they do a background check, I go and purchase my firearms. Why do I need to have a license that I have to renew every four or five years? You know, it, it becomes more of a money grab than anything else. And, and so that's where many Canadians take that portion of the right to bear arms. I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to buy any legally produced and legally distributed good in this country without a license. So why is it applied to this one particular item? If I can pass the safety training, if I can pass the background check, then why am I further needing this license which says if I don't have, which law says if I don't have, I'm a criminal, and I'm going to jail for three years. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for half a second here. Maybe because uh, somebody would say that the difference between the fishing pole and the gun is one is designed to kill, the other one is designed to catch fish. Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, that's, and, and that's, a, that's, a lo- that's a very logical argument, you know, uh, to bring with that. But I look at it more of a, you know, of a, of a consumer you know, consumer of goods, mm. right? Um, yes, the, the fishing pole is not going to kill anybody. The bow and arrow can, though, right? And I still don't need a license to have one of those, right? So that's, that's where the, the, whole, the whole thing comes down to with the regards to the right to bear arms. It's, it, again, like I said, in Canada, we look at it so much differently because we come from a different background than the Americans did, which they instilled the right to bear arms 
within their law because they had just fought a tyrannical government that wanted to take their arms away. So that's where their mentality comes from. Whereas ours has always always been in our law. We just never flaunted it like they do, and we just never were... We never had to fight fight off a, another... Exactly. Power, I, yeah. think, I think it would be a very much different story if we actually did have to fight off. Like if we broke off like the Americans, you know, and did our own thing. I, I think it would be a, a bit different story. I don't know how different, but, you know... So that's that's part of the, you know, one of the complaints that a lot of firearms owners have with the current legislation. Many actually within the firearms community, when when the firearms laws came out and there was you know there's so much fight against and whatnot, so many people said, "Hey, let's just go back to the FAC." That worked. There was nothing wrong with it. There was no problems with it. We you know. The the actual crime statistics from the point of the Bill C sixty eight and and the and the licensing and the registration, the actual drop in numbers there's a drop obviously, but I've actually got a couple of graphs here. There was already a significant decline in violent crime and in gun crime in Canada prior to the nineteen nineties. And and you can see that in the graph, Stats Canada, it's all in there. There was already a, a very steep trend in in the reduction of uh, firearms related crime firearms related homicides and when it and so when the laws were introduced in the 1990s in the mid 90s you can actually see the graph kind of not level out but it's not as steep it's still reducing it's still going and that's a, a lot of the people who are within the anti-gun or the gun control community, they look at that graph and say, well, we see it's it, it's going down. Yeah, but if you look at what ha- was happening prior to it, from the 1960s on, yeah. it was already going down, right? And that's due to the good work of our police forces and nothing else. No, no laws have really done a significant or caused a significant impact. It's It's... More money for police forces. It's restorative justice. It's social programs. It's all that kind of stuff. That's what makes the difference in both crime in general and in gun crime. Yeah, uh, probably also I put in the probably the um, empathy of the population. You know? Oh, for you, sure. When you're when you think of yourself as a, a group of individuals, like as a we, then you're not inclined to stab somebody else just to get something. You know, mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. as good. But in, in the fact that you mentioned stabbing is interesting because if you... Uh, I dug up the statistics. I have the, the graphs here. Between 2008 and 2013, there were approximately... Each year, there's anywhere between 500 and 600 homicides in the country. For the whole country. Mm-hmm. You know, Now, if you consider a population of 35 million and there's five to 600 homicides... A year. That's it's one one homicide is one too many. But it, in, in actual statistical Overall, numbers, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's 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 not as good as Japan. It's not as good as some other you know G twenty nations that are out there. But it's not it's not bad. Norway and Finland actually have a worse violent crime rate than we do. But um, when you look at the statistics, two thousand eight up to two thousand thirteen. The actual number of people, total number of people killed in this country, and you break it down into the the weapons that are used, there were actually more people stabbed to death than shot to death in total from 2008 to 2013, approximately 80 more. And, and, And oddly enough, there's a bit of a pattern from year to year. 
some you know there's some years that there's been more sta- fatal stabbings than fatal shootings other years there's been more fatal shootings than fatal stabbings and um we all know a lot of that comes from the you know the crime community gang violence and all that kind of stuff but you know if you if you want to say oh there, we have a problem with guns in this country we we need to we have a problem with handguns we need to ban them we need to get rid of them well then you have to apply that same logic to knives because the statistics show that knives are actually killing more people than guns are i don't know if i, if I would agree with that i, I fine it, you can go like that but the knife is also primarily a tool right i mean if if you were saying you have to ban daggers i would probably agree Banning knives? I know. I think well, we could probably go on a technicality on here. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because if you're using a kitchen knife, it's usually primarily used as a tool. Otherwise, I've got an arsenal right behind you. Though. Yeah. Yeah, no, I would, well, I, would, I, would, I would take it further and say then the, the types of knives, like your, your tactical knives and your folding knives and stuff like that, yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. those are, I mean, those that's, are. That's a fair statement. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so there's, when we look at our crime statistics and we look at, you know how uh, the numbers play out. Uh, like in terms of can for Canada, we have. I just wrote a couple of things here. Uh, and for we'll take 2012 because it was the best examples I could find. In 2012, uh, firearms were involved in only two percent of all cases of violent crime. Two percent. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, actually. In, in turn, and in, in for the rest of violent crime, uh, in eighty-one percent of situations, there was no weapon involved at all, and then in seventeen percent of other situations, it was either a knife or sharp object or blunt instrument that was used. So when people see a shooting in Toronto or the gang violence that you see in, um, you know, British Columbia, and they say, "Oh, we've got to ban these things. We've got to get rid of these things," well. When you look at the hard statistics, there really isn't a problem outside of the gang world. And we all know they're using illegally acquired handguns or illegally acquired shotguns or stolen firearms, whatever. And a lot of those illegally used firearms are actually, especially the handguns, are coming in from the United States. So there's a good... um, There's a good... um, uh, uh, there's a couple of documentaries out there on the on YouTube which I I can't remember and I totally forgot to write the names down. But they they, they there was actually even uh, a very good news documentary done by um, I think it was Global or CTV News with regards to the the rate of gun violence and gun crime in the country. And in fact, gun violence and gun crime involving shotguns and and, and rifles has dropped dramatically since the 1960s. Handgun crime, on the other hand, has actually increased, even since they've been reg- registered, even since the Firearms Act came into effect in the 1990s. It has gone up, and it has remained at a constant level within the last 10 years or so. And the majority of that, again, is due to gang violence. Hmm. Interesting. So, Very interesting. Yeah. So when people start, when you see these shootings and you see this stuff going on TV and they start saying, you got to ban this, you got to ban this, well... What about everybody else who is legally using these, right? Yeah. Like, I, I I, have a couple of handguns. I take them to the range. I enjoy shooting them. I train to shoot them uh, for competition purposes. 
you know, I'm not Mr. Tactical Dude, you know, U.S. ex-Marine who's training to fight the, the, the and, government, and trying to b- knock down my front door. And you I see do that it for while sport. wearing the camo T-shirt. Hey, I was uh, working with the cadets today, so. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I do it. It's a sport. It's, a, it's sport. It's all sport shooting for me. Um, there are a number of different sports uh, with regards to shooting out there. Um, you know, there's uh, one called the International Pistol Shooting Competition, IPSC, probably the most widely known one. It's all about speed and accuracy. And, I mean, there are teams that are sponsored by companies. They travel around the world. I mean, it's huge. It's big business. It's big money. Um, but it's just an enjoyable, it's just a fun thing to do. You know, um, it's, I don't, I don't play chess. I don't shoot archery. I don't race cars. I don't, you know, this is my hobby. Right. And, uh, you know, and so people like myself, we, you know, we get our backs up a little bit when every time there's a, there's an incident revolving firearms and you have, Groups like the Coalition of Gun Control coming out, Wendy Sukier and her her group, they come out like, well, we got to ban these, we got to ban these, we got to get rid of them. Well, hold on a second, you know, if you want to, if you want to kind of use that logic that this bad apple used this gun, and so now I can't have it anymore. Well, alcohol in drunk driving incidences kills more people than guns do. Why is nobody out there screaming and crying for prohibition? Oh, okay, yeah, and that's perfectly fair. And you can use the same argument with somebody running over 20 people with a car. And Well, no, no. I don't like that argument, to be honest. Okay. I really don't like that argument because it's not the car's fault. It's the person behind the car, mm-hmm. right? That's why I use the, the, the alcohol argument. A lot of gun folks will use that. Oh, well, cars can kill people. I can run through a busload. It's not the car's fault. Just as like it's not the gun's fault. It's the person behind the car. And that's why I like to use the alcohol argument because the person has knowingly and purposefully intoxicated themselves. And even though they are not in a straight frame of mind, they are still getting in behind the car. And there's still a thousand plus people a year, according to Mad Canada, that are dying due to drunk driving. So why is there not a call? I mean, it's five times the number of body count than, than firearms. So why is there no call for a prohibition? Yeah, it's uh, it's hard to argue that. Absolutely. Uh, I want to take the conversation to uh, a bit of a different angle all of a sudden. Sure. Uh, I want to talk about the myth of the firearm, the myth of the gun, because uh, you realize, especially when you're an atheist uh, or a progressive, you realize that half your battles in life are not about essentially the issue, but the myth about an issue. Mm-hmm. Um can you speak to the idea that a lot of people are deathly afraid of guns? And you and I can we do martial arts and we're in the same class and all that. And I want to talk about, you know, how the, 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 the myth of the gun is so overwhelming. Uh, because a lot of people, they say, well, it's a gun. It's extremely dangerous. Yes, it is in some, in, in some sense. But I think you'll agree with me that if you were in a close situation, a close combat situation, a knife would be much more dangerous than a gun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's uh, some good YouTube videos out there uh, showing, um, well, we, we as martial artists already know the 21-foot rule. That's right. Right? And that actually plays into the use of a firearm as a self-defense against a knife. Um, the, average, um, the average shooter, like myself, if a person was standing with a knife 21 feet away from me and charged me, 
I would not be able to get the gun out of my holster or whatever it was quickly enough to defend myself. Yeah. That's very true, actually. There's no myth to that at all. No, it's quite true. Yeah, and so that that goes, but but that also goes to the fact that, you know, here in Canada, we don't have carry, concealed carry or, or, or external carry, right? So to to argue that in terms of, in, in a Canadian sense, it's like, well, we're not allowed to do that anyway, so I would never be able to defend myself with a gun against a knife attacker anyhow. But you could argue that within a, a home situation too, right? Um, you know, if you're confronted with an attacker in your home, are you going to be able to react quickly? Well, it all depends on how proficient you are with the firearm. Yeah, it all yeah. comes down to practice, 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 practice. It's the same with our martial arts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I because you know there are some things like, uh, for example, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it in the '60s where they they started realizing that the myth of the gun, following especially the era of the spaghetti western, you know, where you got Clint Eastwood would just shoot the bad guy, and the guy just went goes. He, he takes one shot and he flies 10 feet behind him through a window down into the, the watering hole or something like that. Uh, they realized that even police officers on, the, uh, on active duty would get shot, even with something of a small caliber or even in the leg, and they would just collapse of a heart attack because of the myth, because of the myth of the gun being such a devastating weapon. Well, I think, um, I think Hollywood for sure has played into the, 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 the ethos of the myth of the gun. Um, you know, Clint Eastwood shooting a six-shooter 20 times before he has to reload. <laughs> you know? Well, that's Clint I mean, Eastwood. He's that good. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, in, ter- in terms of firearms, I think Hollywood has done a disservice to the firearms community. Uh, a lot of misconceptions through that. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, police officers being involved in shootings, um, the truth, the truth of the matter with that is a lot of police officers do not practice regularly. They do their once or twice a year qualification to be able to carry their sidearm, and that's it. They don't train to defend themselves. Um, I have a good friend of mine um, whose dad was an officer for 43 years with the RCMP. He never once drew his sidearm in 43 years on, on the street. He he was a very good officer. He was able to talk situations down, um, but he never drew his sidearm, and so you know, and he never shot the sidearm unless he was doing his qualification, right? So the officers, the way they train, the way they prepare themselves mentally for the engagement, I think, is what really affects how well they react to actually being shot. And you know, I've never been shot. Hope never to be shot. <laughs> I'd probably be shooting myself in the foot more than anything else. But yeah, this is a um, nice show. Left of the valley, we're going to shoot Ken in the foot and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, a lot of a lot a lot are not ready for the shock of it, the pain and the trauma of it. Um, there's actually a really scary video on the net right now. Uh, it shows Russian FSB operatives practicing. And they are literally shooting each other with vests on. They are shooting each other point blank range, and that's how they train. Now the FSB, for for those who don't know, the FSB is essentially the the uh, Russian version of the CIA, is it? Uh, CIA, Secret Service. Okay. Yeah, this you know, special police, whatever, FBI. Um, but yeah, they're they're actually training and they're shooting each other point blank. You know, they have protective vests on and everything, but you know, so. If 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 
North American police officers trained that way? Would they react differently once they're in a shooting? Of course they would, but we're not crazy Russians. I don't think we would ever advocate that kind of training. So, But the myth, the myth of the gun, a lot of it comes to do with Hollywood. A lot of it comes to do with, like anything, people fear what they don't understand and that they don't know. And that's the that's part of you know my my role as a as a, you know firearms advocate. Uh, part of the roles of the the three well, there's two big firearms advocacy groups in Canada: the National Firearms Association and the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. There's a third one that's emerging now called the Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights. It's a very grassroots new one. Much of what these associations try to do is. <laughs> educate more than anything else they're they're not sort of in your face oh you, you, we need to have this we need to have this well actually maybe the nfa is a little bit but um education is the one thing that they all try and do you know the you know it's like yeah you know invite your friend out to go for a shoot you know if, if he never does it again and it, and, it, and it totally scares the willies out of it at least he he knows you know, he, at least he's experienced it. Maybe some of that fear and the, the myth of the gun yes. is alleviated through that. And you'll find, oddly enough, with women who fear guns, you take them out and just the first time they're hooked. I have a lot of female... I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah, I have I've, I've a number of female friends that I've taken out that were just very skeptical and very afraid. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And just for all the ladies out there, just to let you know, you are better natural shooters than men. There we go. <laughs> I think that's going to be a good point if I jump in. Oh, by uh, all means. There are a couple of things I want to actually, uh, since I disagree with Ken on a number of issues. Oh, okay. Uh, it's not a constitutional right. Uh, it's a common law right, as uh, Ken said. And the beauty of it is that common law rights can be taken away by parliament or provincial legislatures at any time. A simple majority in the parliament can take away the right to bear arms in Canada. That's just as the way it is. And the firearms, uh, the constitutional right would be in the United States uh, because Congress uh, or the state legislatures can never take away the right to, to bear arms of Americans. That makes it that makes the American version completely different from us. We have never been similar or even close to being like Americans in this regard. But could they not amend the Constitution and simply remove it if they wanted to? Uh, in the history, the 225 years history of the United States, the Constitution have only been once uh, the, an amendment has been repealed. The Second Amendment has already been amended. That uh, The right to bear arms has been added. Uh, it was the 18th Amendment, which was a prohibition. And in 1919 and then 1933, they repealed it with 21st Amendment, which repealed the 18th Amendment. Okay. Uh, if for that to happen, there has to be pretty much... Uh, it's still political act, nightmare, whichever way you look it's at it. It's, it's basically impossible, even though I believe it's the right thing for them to do, that the Second Amendment be repealed and the states be given the right to... Uh, similar to Canada, passed mm -hmm. laws like the Firearms Act, which allowed Amer uh, Canadian citizens to bear arms. Uh, for those states that want to bear arms, say Montana, uh, to keep their guns and have the guns. In terms of... So that's a huge, huge difference right there because when you're starting with com constitutional rights, which are at the top, uh, statutory rights that are given by 
uh, statute and common law rights which are given by courts in cases decided by judges. Uh, these are completely different, and the hierarchy is so vastly different that you just simply can't say that we are similar to Americans in terms of this being a right being given by the uh, by the English in the 16th and 17th century. Uh, the next issue that I want to talk about is the under, the reason behind second uh, the, the right to bear arms in Canada. We have had it as a sports for hunting. Uh, it was at the, for the time that we were the frontier. We were trying to defend ourselves uh, from the, from the f- terror of living in the frontier. But in the United States, the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms was instituted because to enforce the institution of slavery. They had four million slaves that they had to basically kept in uh, forced labor, and you cannot hold people to be working for you <laughs> and be sold without putting a gun to their heads. And that's why that when the United States was formed, the southern states made it, a, made it one of the uh, conditions for them to join the Union, that they would uh, add the Second Amendment as part of uh, the, right to, to, um, uh, the right to have a state militias and the right to bear arms. And state militias were basically gangs of uh, uh, armed people that were ro- running around arresting as, uh, fugitive slaves. And this was the right that they had on all the way until 2008. This was the understanding of the Second Amendment. This was a, not an individual right. It was a group right, and you were supposed to be part of the uh, like the National Guard or an army or some group, and then you, you could bear arms. And the states uh, were giving this right, to, additional right to individuals, some states, uh, to, for individual ownership of uh, handguns and others. Some states were trying to legislate it out. That's the topic of gun control. And in 2008, the United States Supreme Court came down and said that no, it's an individual right, and no state can actually take away the right to bear arms and legislated it out. Really? That recent, huh? Uh, that's 2008, yes. That's very recent. And in 2009, they passed a law. Uh, the 2008 was the federal government. 2009, there was a subsequent decision uh, about the city of Chicago. The, the one that came down in 2008 was about the city of Washington, D.C., which is a city run by the federal government. It's not part of any state. The 2009 one was city of Chicago, and they applied the ruling of 2008 to across all 50 states. So essentially you were saying there, the Americans instituted the, the rights to carry them, not to protect themselves because they came out of a war, but you claim they did that because they simply wanted to keep control on uh, slavery, in other words. The, I'm talking about 1780s yeah, yeah. all the way to 1860s, and so that's the original the reason that why the Second Amendment is there. Wow. From 1950s, 1960s, when the gun manufacturers, uh, if you're talking, if you're t- t- thinking big oil is a strong lobby or big tobacco oh, is a strong lobby, none of them is even the small finger of the gun manufacturers' yeah, lobby. It's, the NRA, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's not even remotely close in terms of power in the States, in terms of, uh, and even though, like, for example, after Sandy Hook massacre, there were, uh, state legislatures and there were plenty of the federal government, uh, federal legislatures who wanted to put some basic measures that we have in our Firearms Act in their laws. Uh, there was absolutely uh, no way that they could pass it through the U.S. Cong- US Senate, uh, let alone the state legislatures. Goodness gracious, don't you like our American cousins? And uh, I'm a little scared of our American cousins, we'll say. Yeah, and then... Huh. We were talking about that uh, 
I had actually I sat down and read Or Firearms like just to basically get myself familiar with this, uh, to uh, how much because I learned the American version first and then I was I wanted to learn what the well of course I read the Iranian version first which is if you own a gun it's capital punishment it's not three years in prison it's capital punishment if you don't if you own a red uh, unregistered uh, gun and the only guns that the governments allow is uh, hunting gun, rifles. So if you're arrested in an assault rifle, that's, that's capital punishment. You're, you're, they're going to kill you, wow. uh, regardless of if you just founded it in the street. Uh, in U.S., which is exactly the opposite, when you're coming from a Middle Eastern country, all of a sudden you're coming to the States, and then basically everyone owns a gun. And uh, the, just the culture shock of that is huge. And... The saying usually goes that Second Amendment protects the First Amendment. Second Amendment being right to bear arms, First Amendment being free speech. And which is kind of the mentality. Uh, Ken was mentioning that 2% of uh, 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 crimes in Canada are gun crimes, if I understood the... The statistics for 2012, I, I was looking for statistics 2013-14. Um, they're not complete fleet. So the most complete records that I could find were uh, 2012. Uh, that's mm, I, My point was, was, well, let's keep it that way. Whatever we're doing is working. And let's keep, the, uh, keep that down. Keep it just for sports. Keep it just for hunting. Uh, keep it just if you're, you want to own a handgun, then you go to a range to shoot it. it. It should be the way it is that if you're not licensed, if you're not registered to own a gun, and somebody is using it in a gang-related violence or in violence of any kind. Uh, there should be additional penalties for that kind of person for, the, for owning a gun that is not registered, that is not licensed. And uh, there, is a second, there is a final issue that I want to mention, and since you brought up the issue of police and RCMP in particular, there is a problem that we have that we are not addressing it yet, and that was exactly what Ken was talking about, about our RCMP and our... Uh, security forces not having ever using their weapons or if they have to use their weapons say against um, not being properly armed in my view nor properly trained to use their weapons because um, it actually came up from a kind of a fictional uh, TV series called West Wing there was a there was a uh, there was an episode of it that a bunch of American hunters in Montana wanted to hunt and there was a there was a, they were hunting in Canada and the Canadian RCMP wanted to stop these hunters and but the, there was a huge disparity because uh, in Montana you practically can own a bazooka under their uh, right to bear arms you can well, there is absolutely no limit whatsoever about what you can buy from of short of nuclear weapons. You can have anything else. Uh, have you seen the deer in Montana? <laughs> <laughs> just, they're like armed to the teeth. And the RCMP is pretty much like, used to just a simple Beretta, which I'm, I'm, I've never had a handgun or a gun in my hand, so I have no idea. But I'm, I, I, my understanding of it is much weaker uh, than mm-hmm. the, being able to stop somebody who's... Um, who's armed with an AR-15. But isn't it, isn't it, I think that brings a very good point, Jim, and I, I want both of you guys' opinion on this. 
Um, you're saying you're saying our, our police are undertrained. I would agree with that. Uh, they're they're under furnished. I guess. In, in I'm I'm saying that the, compared to the threats that they are facing now, okay. uh, we're not talking about uh, like a small uh, family disputes can be talked down. Mm-hmm. If if there is an actual influx of uh, gang violence that we see now, for example, in Mexico right now, uh, if that type of gang violence comes to Canada, I'm not sure if we're ready for it. But is isn't that? Um, Forgive me for being devil's advocate yet again, but isn't that the way that the Americans start thinking when they start militarizing their police force? That's a very good thing. I am very much for you, you're mili- for that. I am very much for militarizing police forces because really? we're, we're talking about a country that people like say Adam Lanza, who did the San Diego Elementary School shootings, was armed to his teeth with Kevlar vests, with all sorts of firearms and guns. Uh, and he, she could kill, what, 26 people, including 20 children. Mm-hmm. That, so in that kind of situation, I, want, I definitely want the police, the good people, to be armed to their teeth with the best possible measure. But it has to be government, and it has to be police as opposed to individual citizens. What do you think of that, Ken? Um, well, I would actually agree with um, uh, Jim. What, Jim, <laughs> what Jim said with regards to the, the arming and the training of police. I mean... Most of your city police forces um, for years now have armed their patrolmen with AR-15 carbines. They recognize the need for that level of firepower to deal with the gang issues that have been existing and have been growing within our communities. And yet the RCMP have refused to do so. And we're talking um, a prime example I'll bring up is um, Mayor Thorpe, Alberta. A gentleman by the name of, um, last name was Roscoe, Uh, he had ambushed four police officers on his property with a high-powered rifle, which, again, was illegally obtained. But all the officers had in their possessions were their issued issued pistols and shotguns. They didn't even have the hard armor plate, you know, uh, to protect themselves from that type of rifle. And... You know that 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 brings that brings to light the whole issue of how um, undertrained, specifically, and under-equipped the RCMP are. I am I am totally I, I do not object to the idea of giving our policemen better arms, more protection, simply because they have lives. They have families. I'd rather see them go home alive than the bad guy, to be honest. Well, that's, that's perfectly fair, but how do you stop what has happened in the States? You know, they've gone completely overboard. They have towns down there that are smaller than the town of Mission with a population of less than 20,000 people with tanks or like almost like military-style tanks rolling down the street with the police logo on it. I mean, this is yeah, taking it too far. Part they have a different police system than we do. The police system that we have, the RCMP, is federal. Uh, it's federal government, basically all across Canada. But it's still the militarization the, of their police force, right? It's militarization of their police force comparable to us would have been if their FBI would have, was that kind of thing. Yes, it's kind of... Um, they, had, they, they were given a whole lot of money uh, under the uh, Patriot Act, and they didn't know how to spend it. So that was basically the way that, that yeah, happened. They, 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 they're essentially getting the... the how do you say that? When you're passing over, you, you're close to your younger brother there. The <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, with a lot of the... Uh, a lot so of the... I'm looking for. I'm sorry? You know, when you... 
When you're getting hand your me downs. Hand me downs. There Thank you. Go. You're getting the military hand me down is what they're getting. Well, exactly. And there's there's um you know one of the things now with a lot of departments you'll see in the states is the, you know most states and and most police forces even some of the small sheriff departments have all had SWAT teams. You know, especially trained individuals for those high risk situations, and they've had an armored vehicle of some kind or another that they could drive and bring to the situation to protect them coming up to it, right? And you know, the armored vehicles are, have been very much similar to armored vehicles that transport um, uh, money, right? So a, a lot of those police forces have already had this kind of equipment. The fact of the matter is is that with all the equipment that the Americans produced for their war in Iraq and Afghanistan, they've got all this extra stuff just sitting around or lying around, and they don't want to give it to anybody else. So it's like a flea market for all the sheriff's departments and the police departments. It's the Army's like, here you go, 95% off. Take it and snatch it. And that's what the police forces are doing. They're, they're essentially upgrading their hardware. Right to meet certain threats and demands. Now, yeah, okay, you know, little twenty thousand person town. You know, I, I would say if I were a, a member of that town, I would question the mayor and I'd question the chief of police. Do we really need to spend this money on this kind of military hardware? But when you look at other Los Angeles, you look at Florida, you know, the you know, Miami, you look at Texas, you look at the cities there, you look at Arizona. I mean, you know, there is. The officers need the training. They need the equipment to protect themselves and to protect the community. How far to take that? Well, that's an American issue that the Americans are going to have to deal with because it's we're not experiencing that up here, except for in the case of the RCMP do use military armored vehicles. There's two of them in, in Surrey. Um, the, 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 the ERT team in, uh, based in Surrey, you have... Um, old military APCs, which they use to, you know, to um, to arrive in for for special assault and and high risk situations. Uh, most other, uh, most other, I when I was working doing prisoner transports for immigration, um, I remember going to uh, Victoria Police Force and out into their basement to pick up the individual. I saw this armored car there, and I'm like. Oh my goodness! Where the heck did they get that thing? I mean, it was an impressive piece of machinery, but it's there to protect the officers. That's the number one most important thing. When we start arming our police officers with rocket launchers, things that do mass damage, I think you have to start then, you know, questioning that kind of thing. But I, I, I don't believe we would ever get to a level like that in Canada. Well, you, you know, I think that. Uh Rightfully so. I think a lot of people are concerned about that. And uh, since we have a tendency to copy whatever the Americans do, so I don't see why we wouldn't get there. But I also want to talk about a bit of the training. Um, because, uh, of course, you're into it uh, can on a regular basis. I used to do security. I uh, almost went for the RCMP uh, Academy. I did not. Um, but I was shocked to see uh, when I went to some meetings and... Uh, and we were talking to police officer, it seemed to me like the mentality has switched. Um, this is anecdotal, of course, but, you know, I remember having this meeting with this the, the, these police officers and they're talking to us, uh, security, we're trying to assist them, and their mentality was essentially, don't touch the perpetrator. You know, you don't touch them because you don't know what they have. You know, in the old days, 
you know, pardon the expression, probably we would have taken a couple of burly guys and pin him down, and that would have been it. Today, it was, it was more like, don't touch him. You don't know what's going to happen. Play safe. Just draw your taser and shoot. Do we have that much of a fear of handling criminals today that we're not willing to take any physical activity against them and that kind of pushes us to use weapons? You know what I mean? Um, from what I've seen, um, both in our own society and what I see down in the States, um, you know, there we put a humongous burden, a huge responsibility on police officers. They have a, for lack of a better term, they have a license to kill, right? Now, giving being given that kind of power, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think, you know, the one of the issues that I've, you know, and I've talked to police officer friends and whatnot about it, and they've and they've expressed their feelings on it, and that was in an officer involved shooting. It is a massive investigation. It's almost more massive in many cases than a bad guy on bad guy shooting, right? Because every single aspect of the officer's actions has to be scrutinized to the nth degree to be sure that his action of homicide, because it is an action of homicide, was justifiable. And so I think what you see in in officers, and this is what has been conveyed to me, that they are reluctant or maybe not so much reluctant, but they give a second thought to reacting with violent force and would, you know, would prefer to use nonviolent. And most of them would prefer to use nonviolent anyways. But in situations where violent force is necessary, they hesitate because they think to themselves, when I pull my gun and I shoot this guy, is this the end of my career? Is this me going to jail? And the thing is, is if the officers are expected to be protecting society and public with firearms, the last thing you want is a is a, an officer pulling his weapon, thinking that he may very well go to jail by shooting it. This is actually a, an excellent question, and it's a very good topic to actually make a comparison that ha- why our current state of laws in the firearms act is so great. Because, say, if this Let's imagine a situation happening uh, in the States versus a situation happening here in Canada. And there's a police officer, and he is dealing with a person uh, who's uh, in the midst of a criminal act. In the United States, uh, there is a more than highly probable chance that this person is armed. So when the police officer is approaching that criminal during this activity, he has to deal with that this is his life on the line. So if there is a threat that this person is going for or toward uh, his waist or something, he's probably armed, and he may be pulling a gun, he doesn't have a, a, enough time to basically defend himself. Uh, in Canada, because we, don't, we, we are still not at that stage, we have to assume that every criminal is armed. So that's why we have much more scrutiny on our police officers, whether they were justified to use their firearms or not. Otherwise, it's going to be like a state that they kill they, put, they kill, kill some unarmed person every other day. And you can just look at the news, uh, just police killing of unarmed people assuming that they were armed. Uh, we don't have that in Canada to that extent, obviously. I, I haven't heard anything in, in, in Canada that a police officer shot and killed somebody who thought he was armed. 
the last time I heard was in 2006 or seven that a guy in Port Moody was uh, shot and killed an unarmed person, and he had a gu- had a knife in his hand. Uh, but other than that, it, one of the good things that the current system that we have works is just because of that fact that not that many people own a firearm. The police doesn't have to go into a battle assuming that the person that he's trying to apprehend is armed. Yeah, well, that that one I would have to disagree with because of with the officers that I've spoken to, and th- and this plays into the the whole the long gun registry and everything as well. Um, most of the officers I've ever spoken to have said when they go into a situation, especially if the criminal is known to them, they will automatically assume there is a weapon of some kind that may or may not be involved, and that and, and that's. And a lot of them have said that even even or responding to a home, they said in a lot of cases the registry made no difference to them whatsoever because they just assumed. Especially if there was a fire if there was a firearms license registered to the home, they automatically assumed. They didn't care what type of firearm it was. They knew that there were would be firearms or the higher higher likely possibility that there would be firearms. So they, they approached with that mentality, getting their mindset ready to engage in that. But a few of the officers that I've spoken to as well, a couple of SWAT guys from Abbotsford as well, um, they felt the long gun registry itself was a complete waste of time because they said, so I go to a home that doesn't have a firearms license registered to it. It doesn't have any firearms registered to it. We don't know who this person is. I don't know if there's illegal firearms in there or not. They always have to assume the worst possible scenario. And if they go in doing otherwise, they jeopardize themselves and anybody else that's involved. So, and, th- and this, is just, this is just straight from police officers. These are guys that I've, I've known for a long time. Um, they, the long gun registry uh, and, and knowing where the guns are really did not make a difference to a lot of them. For some, it did, and I can understand the legal justification for having a registry because, yeah, okay, you, you do kind of want to know that the gun is there, but the bad guy doesn't have a license. The bad guy doesn't have them registered. I wasn't so, advocating for long gun registry. So. Oh no, I'm just saying as part of it, right? Um, you know, I think I think our laws that we have, and I, I totally agree that you know. We have some we have some pretty decent law with regards to the ownership of firearms in this country. There's just some seriously lacking of um, not so much flexibility, but the case of like the farmer who has the 22 on his on his property that he uses to get rid of varmints. You know, he's a criminal for not having a license, right? Um, you know, the, 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 ID, like, again, like I said, you know, the old FAC system, which was in play prior to the, the current firearms act, there were no problems with that. People were background checked, you know, um, I don't know if it's uh, probably not common knowledge to most people, but under the current FAC system, having a firearms license and especially a restricted class firearms license, I'm actually background checked every single day, which is an actual violation of my rights. Because I have to give the police permission to do that, under except under circumstances where I may be suspect of a crime. And now they're going to know you came to left of the valley. 
You might just lose that privilege. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge among, you know, many in the firearms community that this is the case. It's an RCMP computer in Miramichi, which runs your name, date of birth against CPIC, the Canadian Police Information System. They're run daily. Mm-hmm. So the, it's, it's, it's a common sort of little joke amongst firearms people that we're the best people in the country because I just got a background check today. Did you get one? You know, <laughs> that's very good actually. I'm I'm surprised because I think that the fact that you yeah, let's hypothetically assume that you're being checked every day and you're passing it, it's a compliment to you mm-hmm. uh, because the law says that a person cannot own a firearm who has ever used or threatened or attempted violence. Uh, as an offense, correct. Yeah, so that you basically so that tells that right away. It's a, uh, or another one uh, has been treated for mental illness, mm-hmm. whether in a hospital, mental institution, psychiatric clinic, or otherwise. Yeah, and I totally totally of agree. Behavior with that. that includes violence or threatened wow. or attempted violence. So the very fact that uh, the country wants those kind these kind of peoples, the people, not to have firearms and. It requires a registration system, a licensing uh, system, and it requires for these people to be checked daily to make sure that they're compliant so they're not, they haven't done a, th- a threat of violence or act of violence. Uh, it's, I'm, I, I just read this part because uh, these are things that, for example, Americans don't have. Mm-hmm. Americans have none of these, and we have them. It's a blessing that we do. So in summary, gentlemen... Um our system is much better than the Americans. It's not perfect, but it could use some help. And somewhere down the future, we'll probably be able to refine the laws. Am I correct? Oh, for sure. I mean, there's just a prime example is the recent law that was just passed, Bill C-42, the Common Sense Firearms Licensing Act. Part of uh, part of the firearms uh, conditions on transporting firearms and whatnot is restricted and prohibited firearms are only allowed to be used at a range. Okay. To an, and, and the law states that you have to take it from your place of residence to the range in the most direct route possible. Okay. Now, the conditions with regards to transport are actually um, not a federal statute, but uh, conditions placed on an individual's license by the, the provincial chief firearms officer. So if a chief firearms officer wanted to limit where you could take your gun, he just simply would, could do it. Completely arbitrary decision on his part. No oversight on it. No, you know, uh, just completely discretionary on his part. So, as a prime example, with transporting the non, the transporting the restricted firearms, I I had my authorization to transport, and I used to be able to take it to the range, to the gun store, to the uh, gunsmith, to the gun show, if I wanted to sell it, and to the border. Well, solely over time, all of those were taken away for no reason whatsoever to the point where I could only take it to the border or I could take it to the range. Well, why? If I want to take my gun down to the gunsmith to get fixed, why do I have to call in and say, hey, I'm doing, I'm doing this? How is that any different than me going to the range? Mm. And that's what's happened with the new law is that the conditions are now attached to the license. You don't need an extra piece of paper or hall pass permission to do so, and they've broadened and expanded the terms of where you can take the thing. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. You've given us a lot of food for thought. Nancy, you've been like absorbing all this without saying a word. 
it's not my area of expertise. I have a lot of opinions, but I'd rather learn. So today was a really good learning lesson for me, and I appreciated it. We'll have to do a part two at some point in time because I think we've just scratched the surface, it seems. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. I'd love to. Jim, thank you so much for coming. You're, you're welcome. You're always welcome back. Ken, same thing. You got a friend uh, up here. And uh, for all of you guys out there, if you want, you can... Uh, can you, can you find you somewhere, Ken, if they want to ask you a question or something? Is there somewhere... No, I don't really. No, <laughs> he doesn't do that. Well, you can always follow us at liftofthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can go to Block Talk Radio. If you go to Block Talk and you sign up, they will send you an email whenever we air. We're also now on Spreaker, and we're looking to go on Stitcher. Coming up soon, uh, the next show, we're going to have um, our friend Connie that's going to give us a uh, take a look at Alzheimer's disease. We also have an interview with Del Ray about the myth of sex addiction. Guys, thank you so much for coming overall. Thank you for having me. Thank Until next time, guys. Glory.